Uh, today we reach the conclusion of a large section of the Gospel of John. In a sense, what happens in this passage today is everything that's come before this point gets poured into this final section and summarized in a way that's helpful as we move to the next. This is uh, a portion in which the final public speech of Jesus is made before his death, and it comes with tremendous power and influence. We are just at this point a couple of days now away from when Jesus will be crucified, and then a few days after that, resurrected. Every word is important for us to understand how much Jesus loves his church. And my prayer is today that we would get a sense of that together as we look at it. A disclaimer is necessary for this passage. Uh, This is not an easy text, uh, and it's not therefore going to be an easy sermon. But I want to encourage you that your your grace-saturated hard work will be fruitful. Uh, We would do well to think deeply about some things about God at times. And this passage is certainly one of those. Our conviction as a church is that all of God's word is true. And that as God's people open it, that we'll hear from him. Because the scriptures are not just telling us what God said in the past. They do that. But the scriptures are also God speaking today. And so if we want to hear from God in a way that we can be for sure that we know what he's saying, the place we go is the Bible. So it's not just God spoke, but God is speaking. Some of the things God says are easy to hear. Other things are more difficult. And this, some of what's in this text would be considered difficult, has been difficult for me. So we might say that uh, we could put it this way. Whoever has ears to hear, may we hear what God would say. Christina Chow is going to come read for us. Uh, You may have noticed Christina up singing the last couple of weeks. You have a beautiful voice. Thank you. Christina and her husband, Shing, moved from uh, Kentucky recently to be a part of Church on Mill. And uh, Shing is on staff with Life Among the Nations Ministry have really grown very quickly to love this family. I encourage you to get to know her. Would you read for us? John 12, 20 through 50. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me, him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. 
Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself given me a commandment what to say, and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Thank you, Christina. Would you pray with me for a moment? God, thank you that you tell us not only what we want to hear at times, you tell us what we really need to hear that we don't want to hear. Give us uh, understanding this morning as we aim by your grace through your spirit to think deeply about you. We love you and praise you. Thank you that everything you say is good and will help us, will give us hope, help us mature in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jill and I were in our early 20s, we lived in uh, Oklahoma, and oddly enough, we took up scuba diving. Not in Oklahoma, of course, but uh, from Oklahoma, you can fly very quickly down to the Caribbean and for fairly cheap. So before we had children, we took quite a few trips to an island called Cozumel. I don't know if you've ever been snorkeling or scuba diving, but it is a completely different world under the water. If you'll get down around 20, 30, 40 feet there's a whole array of colors in life that just aren't topside. 
And we had so much fun together watching the life that God has uh, created down there. Cozumel is uh, largely, you'll dive at 50, 60 feet, and the ocean floor is, is right there, and the reefs sit on top, and there's a big current. So you just do a little bit of work getting down to that depth, and then you just float along and watch as God puts on display so much of what he made. About my eighth or ninth dive in, I went with a group of guys to do what's called a wall dive. And the whole way on the boat ride to this spot, they're all talking together about the first time they ever saw the abyss. And uh, I was a bit of an arrogant uh, daredevil and thought they were dumb for being scared of the abyss. Had no idea what this even meant, other than this is where there's no more bottom and you can't see. And so we go down to 50 feet or so, start swimming, and then we re- reach the cliff. And then I understood. Uh, imagine standing on top of a building, really tall building, looking over the edge and not being able to see the bottom. No ground. And then as far as you could see out this direction, nothing. That is what it's like to come to the moment where the shoreline just drops underneath the water. Apparently it's several thousand feet deep at this wall. And it literally took my breath away. I've never experienced anything else like it. So then I understood why these men who had dove a lot more than me were, uh, were scared. It was beautiful. It was amazing. It was captivating. And it provoked an appropriate sense of fear. And then we jumped. We, we dove down into the water further and further and further. At about 100 feet, you can't see the top anymore. And there's nothing at the bottom to see. And you're looking this way at a wall, and that's it. And it it was a crazy experience. A scary experience. The abyss is nothing to play around with. Our, Our passage today is a bit like that. This is a spiritual abyss. There are things here we'll look into together that we can't see the bottom of. They're captivating, they're wonderful, they're beautiful, and we ought to feel a little bit of fear because God is disclosing parts about him and his plan that we can't possibly fully grasp. But let's look today with a longing that we might be enraptured with something of who God is. I made a list of just a few things here that I don't fully understand, but that are clearly here. Uh, One of them is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We see here that there's one God, and we know as we've sang today that there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, three persons. Theologians for generations have called that the Trinity. And in this text, we see that the Father and the Son are perfectly united, so much so that they are even one. And as Christina read, we saw that they are 
equals Father and Son, perfectly united, eternally, one God. And yet, it's clear that there's roles within the Trinity. It's clear that the Son gladly follows the Father, even submits to Him. The Son says, I obey the Father. I say only what the Father tells me to say. Equal, and yet one submits to the other with no sense of inferiority. God has the perfect community in and of himself. Each member of the Trinity has a different responsibility. That's an abyss we could stare into forever, isn't it? Another truth is the reality that God is a faultless blend of mercy and justice. That God gives mercy in a way that is extravagant and wonderful. Many of us have been recipients of it. And yet he's also just. No sin ever committed by anyone in the world will ever go unnoticed by a perfect God. Those two things fit together in utter perfection in the character of God. Another truth you might find particularly helpful at this point in our nation's history is the problem of racism and the resolution of it at the cross. Look at the very first verse. You'll notice that it ends with the word Greeks. We won't spend a lot of time here, but just for a moment. People who would have been thought of as being unworthy and excluded from getting to know God, come to meet with Jesus. And the fact that they came triggers Jesus to end up talking about his kingdom being global. You see, the church isn't just for one nationality. It's for all kinds of people. The cross defeats the horrid, ugly stain of racism amazing. Racial superiority is defeated by Jesus' radical sacrifice. That's another abyss we need to look into that's so present and problematic in the world today. A couple more. There is the harmony of two ideas in this text that seem incredibly contradictory. We learn both that people are responsible and accountable before God, and we make real choices that matter. And yet also, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. In particular, this passage shows us that he's sovereign over salvation, that God chooses, and yet people make choice too. If you can figure out exactly how those things work together, let me know. But they're both here. We see another Incredible truth that there is a perfect God who's holy in every way and that people owe their complete allegiance to him. And yet that God, the God that we offended in our sin, took the punishment of that sin upon himself. That's a love beyond anything else you and I can ever fully comprehend. All of these truths are together in one passage We could stare at them together for Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and never see the bottom. 
and yet we just have today. Now, while we can't exhaust all of these truths, we can try to synthesize the whole. And that will be what I want to try to do with you this morning. I've summarized it this way. It'll be on the screens. Jesus was glorified in his life-giving, wrath-taking, global mission. And this glorification demonstrates that everyone must believe in him or face God's judgment. I recognize that's thick, like meatloaf, but it tastes good, unlike meatloaf. So hang with me, try to chew on it, let it soak in, take some notes, get together in your gospel community, gather with another brother or sister in Christ, and there's a lot here to to chew on, to consider for much more time than we just have this morning. If I could put that idea more simply... Jesus' glorification demands a universal response. So we're going to consider this overarching idea by looking at three ideas. We'll get as far as we can, and then if any of you are curious about more, I'm happy to buy you a cup of coffee, and we can talk a little further. We'll consider three ideas this morning. Jesus' mission, Jesus' glorification, and Jesus' vindication. We're going to go out of order. I think it'll help it make more sense. Jesus' mission, Jesus' glorification, Jesus' vindication. In verses 44 to 47, we'll learn why Jesus came. Then in verses 20 to 43, we'll see what his glorification means. And then finally, if anyone is still here, we'll look at 48 to 50, Jesus' glorification. So first, Jesus' mission. Friends, that a baby was born in the first century in Palestine, and that he grew up, lived 33 years, became a man, and that his life changed the course of human history is a fact no one can deny, Christian or not. This is simply a fact of history. But why Jesus came is where all the debate comes. Not that he came, but why. Why did Jesus, eternal God, leave heaven, come to earth, add humanity, and live the life he did? Why? What mission did the Father send him on? What job could possibly be important enough that the Creator would humiliate himself, becoming part of the creation? Why would God do that? Well, verses 44 to 47 tell us. And it's important enough, I I want to read it again. So look with me there at those verses. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. Why? So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Friends, this is very simple. Jesus came for one reason. He came to save. Jesus came to save. He left heaven, lived as the God-man in order to bring salvation. Now the next obvious question is, well, salvation from what? 
Many of us know the answer to that in the room today, but would you consider listening in such a way that perhaps God would help you glean ideas and strategies and ways to talk to people about this who would have absolutely no idea what they need to be saved from. I can remember years ago talking with a a first grader whose parents were wondering if she was ready to be baptized, about what it means to be saved. We had a really great conversation. She talked all about how much God loves her and God helps her and God saved her. So I said, tell me, what did he save you from? And she went into this beautiful story about walking around in the backyard and seeing a bee and praying to Jesus, and Jesus saved her from that bee. Precious that as a first grader, she knew to turn her heart toward God. We could learn a lot from her. But is that what Jesus' death and resurrection were really about? No, there's a lot more there. Notice the image in verse 46. Light on the one hand, darkness on the other. Friends, there is light. There is life and purity and holiness and goodness and righteousness. And there's darkness. There's evil and sin and selfishness and death. I recognize in the middle of a chaotic, busy week, You might not have stopped to think about that. And yet light and darkness are everywhere. And the darkness is really dark. Perhaps you watched the news this week as the horrific stories rolled out about two parents with 13 kids who in a typical neighborhood had for years locked up their kids. One escaped. She, by God's grace, found help. Authorities came. They found kids literally chained to their beds. Not by some international terrorist, but by their parents. That is horrific, evil. For nobody seeing that, believing in God or not believing in God, thinks that's okay. It's obviously evil. Our our inner insides recoil at the horrendous nature of that darkness. And yet we must be careful because, friend, that second look of lust at that attractive woman who went by you this week. Your unwillingness to forgive your absent father. Your wasting time incessantly at work watching YouTube when you're being paid to do work for your employer. Your internal disdain for people not like you, difficult to relate to. Your refusal to stop and help somebody in need when you're busy. That's all darkness too. You see, the comparison that God makes is not us to each other, but us to His perfection. Darkness is is not only everywhere. Darkness is in here. 
Jesus came to save because our darkness is pervasive. It's universal. It's enslaving. We cannot fix it ourselves. So Jesus came that he might take on that darkness himself as a substitute because he was the perfect light. That darkness rightly damns us and all people deserve separation from God forever because we are darkness and we commit darkness. And yet Jesus came as the light. His mission was to press back that darkness, dispel it, overcome it by His light. And He was so successful. Friend, if you find the light of Jesus attractive today, and yet you've never come to that light, then the reason you find the holiness of God attractive and not crushing is because He's already drawing you to Him. And so once you turn from that sin and ask Jesus to dispel the darkness and put His light in you, that's why He came. And He would long to do that for you today. Verse 46 says that it takes belief for that to happen. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will be rescued out of darkness and brought into light. To believe in Jesus is to hear the facts of the gospel, to agree with those facts, and then to simply submit yourself to him, trusting him to do for you what you've been unable to do for yourself. And that is to dispel the darkness. Jesus would do that in your life today, regardless of what you've done. Because he's a God of immense love and light. It'd be our great privilege if you want to know more about that and have never trusted Christ to visit with you after the gathering today. Jesus says, believe in me. He says, there's nobody else to believe in. I am the only one who has ever come or will ever come that has this mission. No one else can rescue you out of darkness. Believe in me only. Now that's not one of the more popular parts of Christianity today. That is the exclusivity of Christ. Believe in me. That is exclusive. But notice this passage also says, whoever believes in me. It's it's an inclusive exclusivity. It's an announcement that God's people are to make to every person on the planet. Here is the gospel. Respond to Jesus Christ. It's for everybody. And yet it's only through Jesus. Jesus was constantly telling people, believe in me and I'll save you. And that's what Christians are to be doing. Constantly telling everybody, believe in Jesus. He will save. Now friends, this makes Jesus either the most arrogant, cocky, obnoxious person that has ever lived unless he's telling the truth. In Jesus' own day, some people believed him. If they hadn't, Christianity wouldn't exist because Christianity passes as somebody learns the truth about Jesus and passes it on to another. 
We're a church. We exist because these early people who heard, some of them believed. And the word has spread on and on and on and on. But not everybody believed. In fact, Jesus' own people, the race he was born into, the Jews as a whole in his day, turned away from him. Not every single one, but more than not said, that's not the kind of Messiah we were expecting. We don't believe you, Jesus. Now, these were the eyewitnesses of his miracles. These were people who literally audibly heard him teaching. And yet they still said no to his mission, just like many do today. How do we explain that? How does that make sense? That the greatest news there could ever be is rejected by so many. Well, Jesus' glorification answers that, among many other things, but it does speak to that issue. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour, meaning the hour, not of the day, of something else. We'll get to in a second. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To glorify God is perhaps one of the churchiest things people say, and we don't know what it means. It's, it's a strange, it's a hard word. What is not us honoring God, that's glory, glorifying Him, but what does Jesus' glorification mean? I know it's Sunday morning, and it's hard to get the gears spinning in the head on Sunday morning, but try with me. Here's what glorification means. Jesus' glorification is his death and sometimes his death and resurrection and sometimes his death, resurrection, and ascension. The Bible uses it all three of those ways. Jesus' glorification is his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now in verse 32, we know here that glorification refers mainly to Jesus' death. Because it says, when Jesus was lifted up, meaning when he was lifted up on the cross. And later, of course, lifted up into heaven. That's glorification. All right, pastor, you taught me some dorky theological jargon. So what? Well, hang with me for a couple of minutes. It's not just that after Jesus was resurrected then he got glory. That's true. Philippians 2 teaches that. That's the way I personally almost always think of Jesus being bestowed and recognized as having honor and glory and dominion and kingship. And all of that's true. But perhaps surprisingly, that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage says, Jesus, while... He hung on that cross while he was dying. That was Jesus receiving glorification. Jesus, hanging on a cross, tortured nearly beyond recognition, displayed as an open object of public shame. Jesus, taking on all the sins of everyone who would be saved, feeling the full weight 
of the wrath of God. In that moment, Jesus was the shining display of the character of God. Does that seem weird to you? If it does, that shows us how far our normal thinking is distanced from the way life in the kingdom of God actually works. You see, the death of Jesus is the supreme revelation of the character of God. That love and self-sacrifice and holiness and servanthood displayed by Jesus on the cross showed us those parts of God like nothing ever else could. If you want to see who God is, the best place to look is a bloody self-sacrifice. And the fact that that seems so weird shows us how much we still have to grow in the Lord. Now, the principle is this. In the kingdom of God, life comes from death. In the kingdom of God, life comes from death. That's what Jesus says in an illustration in verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour, meaning the hour of his death, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is a brilliant teacher. He takes, probably plucks a grain of wheat. It was all around. And he says, look, you know that if this grain of wheat doesn't fall to the ground, doesn't get trampled on, in, in a sense, get tortured and beat to death, spread around by the wind, That grain of wheat's not going to amount to anything. But if that dying process happens, then what happens? Sourdough. Pizza. Hamburger buns. Right? It spreads. Death leads to life. Jesus is saying, my being beaten down will lead to a countless number of people Rescued out of darkness into light. You, Christian, are a shining example that he is right. And here's the part you might not like so much. Here's the part that at moments in the last seven days I have fought against. The next verse, verse 25. Whoever loses his Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life for this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is saying, understand the principle doesn't just apply to me. I will die that there might be life, but you must as well. Now, he's not saying you must die on a cross. He's not saying even you must physically die. He's saying you must die to yourself. You must quit thinking you are the most important thing that ever has walked the face of the earth. 
We must recognize who God is and submit to Him. It means that in God's kingdom, people turn from self-interest and self-righteousness and self-rule and self-concern. And by God's grace, instead, we submit to Him. And every day, we look for ways, how can I set aside what I want in order that I might love people well? Because God loved me first. That's what leads to life. Why would we think it'd be any different for us than our Savior? The Christian life is not harnessed in cultural power, in political power, in having all the strength we want to get everything done we want to do whenever we want to do it. It's not found in lots of money. It's not found in being able to rule over everybody. It's found in being a servant of all. Death leads to life. Dying to self, hating life without God, serving Jesus, that's the path to life. Jesus' glorification shows us that. Friends, I can personally tell you, as someone who was so morbidly self-focused as a teenager into my 20s that the more and more God beats me down and I think not about myself but look to you try to love you encourage you serve you think not about myself but by God's grace less and less and less more about how wonderful it is to be your brother and your friend And there is so much more life inside. This works. Jesus' glorification shows us all of this. Now, what did that cost him? Look at verse 27. Jesus, as he recognized the the hour of his arrest, his trial, his beating, his hanging on a cross, and by far the most painful thing, his separation from that union with the Father as he became sin. And he felt not the perfection of union with the Father, but the fury of God's anger. And he was horrified. To say troubled Part of him didn't want to do it. That's how bad it was. Christian, you won't always want to set aside your needs to bless others. But you can. Because Jesus, the one who faced this and said, Father, is there any other way? No, there's not. This is why I came. God, strengthen me that I might obey. Now lives in you. He can do that through you. You can stop to help the old lady who can't carry her groceries to her car. You can serve a brother 
here by spending time with him, even though he's really annoying. You can give money to the work of God, even though that means you might not buy everything you want. You can turn from how you want to spend your evening in front of Netflix and instead invite some folks over, get down on your knees, play with their kids who are going to poop in their diapers and stink up your house. You can because Jesus lives in you. The glorification of the Son mandates a response, an eternal life or eternal damnation hangs on it. Some rejected, some believed. Verses 26 to 43 teach a very tough but important truth about this. All people in and of themselves don't believe in God because they're wicked sinners. Everybody. Everyone who's ever drawn breath. And some of those people remain in unbelief forever. Both because they don't want to believe and because God in his justice hardens their hearts and blinds their eyes, giving them over to that which they want. All people are darkness, all deserve hell, all are responsible to believe in God and hold are held accountable by him. That's true. God justly elects some for salvation and he passes over others in judgment. That's also true. That fact so got under my skin that for years I contemplated packing it in, throwing the Bible away, and saying, I don't think I want anything to do with that. Until I came to see that, friend, I'm not in charge. God is. And there is no other truth in the Bible that will show you whether you're still on the throne or if Jesus is than this. Now, how the two exactly fit together, I don't know. But that's okay. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, when asked, how do these things go together? Pastor, you're always telling us both. How do you reconcile them? Spurgeon responded, I never need to reconcile friends. That dude was a beast. wish I could think of stuff like that. He's saying that the two are equally true, and somehow in eternity they both meet. And so we affirm both. People are responsible. We must decide for ourselves. God is sovereign, and he's good. This passage explains why so many Jews rejected Jesus. 
It also explains why so many people today reject Jesus. But we can never know for certain what God's doing in someone else's life. And so we indiscriminately, passionately, lovingly share with everybody with tenacity, and then we trust God. And that's an immense burden off of us. You can't save anybody. Jesus can save everybody that he wills, and he, in fact, will. Now, some of us are going to go home today very frustrated by this. I know that. And yet, the passage itself shows us that Jesus has been vindicated. Jesus has been vindicated. Our rebuttals against him and their rebuttals then against him, they've been settled. God will show Jesus to be glorious by saving some from every people group on the planet. And he will be shining as king, as he is now, when he comes again. Verse 47 through 50 make it plain that the vindicator of what Jesus has just said, the witness to him, the one who says, yes, some of those things are hard to accept, But everything Jesus says and everything Jesus has done is right and good and holy and true. And you ought to follow him. The one saying that is the Father. And friend, there is no greater vindicator than God. God from heaven bellows out audibly. It's only happened three times in Jesus' ministry. One of them is here. I have glorified it. I will glorify it. He's saying you can line up everybody, but the Father says this is true because Jesus only said what the Father told him to say. Jesus only did what the Father told him to do. If we want God, whom we were created for, then we must accept these truths. Some of them you might fight with like I did and wrestle with. But you will find as you do, as the Spirit brings comfort to your soul. That Jesus is wonderful. Jesus was glorified in his life-giving wrath taking global mission. This glorification demonstrates that everyone must believe in him or face judgment. Non-Christian, come to the light today. Christian, recognize the pattern here set for us. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. Not in order that we might gain God's life, gain his favor, but because he's already given it in Christ, and that's the way it works in the kingdom, just like Jesus did. 
And let's remember, in this day in which racism is so prevalent, the cross levels out all of humanity. Jesus came for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All lives matter. And the church, the church must be the shining example in which people, no matter what the color of their skin, are embraced as equals. Church, if we do that by God's grace well today, we will be doing something. Our country is not. This is what our Savior is doing. He is gathering a global people to display His glory because Jesus was most glorious as He hung there. May we work hard at being a diverse people to show the love of God knows no bounds. Will you pray with me?